perfectionism is a funnel. At the outset, the ratcheting up of expectations for yourself opens you up to exponential growth. But after a while, it becomes a bottleneck that convinces you that you're scraping at the top of your potential when in reality, you're not even close. Hello and welcome to The Swim Brief. I am Chris DeSantis and this is a podcast where I share my insights from my own coaching and the coaches I interact with. I'm also an athlete, an entrepreneur, a husband, a dad, the list goes on. Recently, I had a pretty significant personal breakthrough that I want to share with you, the audience. It goes to the heart of a lot of what I do in coaching, and I think it can really help a lot of people who listen. I do have to warn you before you go any further on the podcast, however, the following does contain some descriptions of serious mental health topics. They're all within my own life experience, including suicide and child abuse. I know that can be really hard to listen to, but I'm going to speak from my heart about some stuff you've never heard on here before, and I can't leave it out. Otherwise, you won't fully understand what I'm speaking to. But first, let me introduce the topic, and then I'm going to tell you my own personal story. Perfectionism is a concept I frequently hear about in my coaching. I've personally struggled with it my whole life, as you're about to see. As usual, I, I think it's worth defining what I mean when I say perfectionism so that we have a shared understanding going forward on this podcast. To me, perfectionism is a catch-all for pervasive thoughts that tell you you have to, you have to, and I have to repeat that, that you have to be better. In a lot of places I coach, I put a lot of emphasis on looking for situations where your self-talk says, quote, I have to do something or meet some standard. That's because I don't think that it is necessarily perfectionistic to want to do better. I think there's a difference between having to do better and wanting to do better. And when something, a, a high standard, when it becomes more or less voluntary, when it becomes something that you want, you get to shed a lot of the negative side effects of high expectations for yourself. I mentioned high expectations earlier, so let me take the next step. I think perfectionism is like a drug that gets a lot of people hooked early because I believe it can lead to explosive growth when you first try it on for size. That's why I say perfectionism is a funnel. If you, you know, you're, you're listening to the audio version of this, hopefully you can all picture what a funnel is, right? It's real narrow at the bottom. It's real wide at the top. And for me, perfectionism is like a two funnels stacked on top of each other with the wide parts touching. So um, the reason why it gets a lot of people hooked is... Uh, even though it is unhealthy to chronically tell yourself that you, quote, have to do better, 
the raising of expectations on yourself will really help you achieve and perform at a higher level. And then that funnel will widen and widen and widen. And then at a certain point, it will start to narrow. And it'll start to narrow. Um, This is the really dangerous part. Because in the long term, it leads a lot of people to learn that their perfectionism is, quote, working. Or that the only way to maintain their level of success and achievement. And the reality is, I'm about to argue that once perfectionistic thought scales up to a sufficient level, it actually becomes a bottleneck. On the other end, there's a funnel. You have them stacked vertically on each other and it funnels into a tiny little opening. And it becomes a bottleneck for your growth. You're probably wondering what you can do about that bottleneck, which is where I'm going to pivot to my own story. Because to get there, I think the best I can possibly do right now is tell you the story of how I got there and then do my best to deconstruct pieces of it for you. In order to tell this story, I'm actually going to have to go back 24 years and talk about one of the harder periods of my own life. I was a sophomore in high school, 16 years old, and that was the year that my brother went off to college, and I was, for the first time, the only child in my house. Um, What I'm about to tell you about my parents, I ask that you don't judge them one way or another. Memories are always colored by the emotions that surround them, so, you know, I think the things I'm going to... Describe, I mean, they're, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm parsing. They're going to be tough. My dad was and is probably what most people would consider a workaholic. He's 76 years old at the time I'm recording this, unretired, and he works all but two weekend days of every month. So he works every weekday, every weekend day, except for two you know, Saturday, Sunday, um, out of every month. He works most, if not all holidays. And he uh, basically has two jobs, one as a psychiatrist within a hospital and another in his own private practice. So, and it's been that way for my, as far as I can tell, for my entire adult life. So if we go back to the point of the story, I'm 16. Um, Most of my life. My dad had been out the door for work before I even woke up and he would return for 30 minutes of dinner at six o'clock and then leave often finally stopping for the day after I was already in bed. Um, I grew up rich by any reasonable standard in a plush suburb, Wellesley, Massachusetts. Um, my mom was at this point when I was 16 working full-time for her American alma mater, Wellesley College. Um, She had been trained as a midwife in Denmark and had gone back to get her bachelor's degree in America at Wellesley College through their continuing education program the year I was born. And she did that over the period of 10 years. Um, Owing to my dad's schedule, she had and was always the on-call full-time parent to my brother and I since the day we were born. 
for the purposes of this story, I'm going to skip vast amounts of personal history, but I, I want to let you that know that piece of it. And I want to zoom in on one aspect of the way that I related to my parents. I thought at this point in my life that I was uh, greatly disappointing to both of them. I would do well in school sometimes. Other times I would flounder in a class and the teacher would always say, I could do well if I wanted to, just didn't seem to want to. I was in the audition-only jazz choir, and at that point, the best swimmer on my high school swim team. And honestly, swimming was a refuge in my life. Neither of my parents seemed to really care how I did in it, so I thrived. <laughs> and naturally wanted to put all of my energy there. Again, I thought that my parents not only found me greatly uh, disappointing, but my brother too. Um, my mom, I remember her lamenting how unambitious we were. I was a really forgetful kid. One of those kids that, you know, people would say like he'd leave his head behind if it wasn't attached to his body. And uh, I remember not being able to find uh, my dress shoe one day when we were all as a family leaving to go on a special occasion. And I, I made the whole family late. And when my mom found it, she picked the shoe up and hit me over the head with it. In contrast, when on the off chance I had the opportunity to go visit my mom at work, I got an entirely different picture of myself. Her co-workers greeted me as if I was the prince of the world, a golden child of unimaginable perfection. And honestly, for the life of me, I couldn't understand why they thought that. My brother, I mentioned him at the beginning of this story, had a similar relation to school and my parents, but less of an interest in swimming. We had started competitive swimming at the same time, me at nine and him at 12. And I, I, I think it never quite caught on to him the way it did for me. Uh, his big interest was in computers and programming at that time. He had built his own email server. And he, I always tell people he gave me my own email address in 1994. Not that I knew what to do with it, but I, I've had an email address uh, coming up on 30 years. As I said, he, he went away to college that fall. He joined the college swim team. And from all reports um, that I got from my parents, I didn't really speak with him. We weren't close. Um, my parents just said he was thriving. And then he tried to kill himself. What I remember next is... Uh, Naturally, a bit of a blur. I had to stop the recording and come back to this. Uh, I, I remember a, a car drive with my parents where they explained what had happened with my brother. I remember my mom sobbing. And I remember that she kept saying she couldn't imagine why this had happened. She thought he was fine. And I remember both my parents checking on me. Some version of, you don't feel like that, do you? Was the quality 
of the question. I remember them asking. And I remember what I decided. That I had to be better. That there was no choice. I had to be better. And most importantly, I had to be mentally sound. And I had to figure out how to do that all by myself. And I did, sort of. I righted the ship in school. I stopped getting the occasional bad grade. I got myself into an elite enough college that I thought made my parents proud. After college, I found a job. And I married a woman that I was pretty sure, honestly, my mom loved more than me. But there were also cracks in the seams along that path. When I was in college, suffice it to say that many listeners of mine will know that I did not get along with my college swim coach. I also think two things are fair to say. The first is that he did play on my insecurity, the need for approval and to be better. I've always thought about a time when I came into his office and I talking about all this stuff I was doing in the off season that I wanted to do and him looking at me and just saying, no matter what you do, it'll never be good enough. But the other thing that I remember in all fairness is that I played on that insecurity so hard that I was often liable to crumble when somebody critiqued me. So I carried a big old chip on my shoulder into young adulthood, into my professional life, into marriage and fatherhood. I had to be better and I set no limits. And therefore, I always came up short. And most importantly, for where I'm going to wrap this story, I thought it was more or less not safe to let my guard down a lot of the time and just feel. Now, long-time listeners will know that my mom passed away nearly seven years ago. I am making a promise here, out loud, for the first time, that I will mark the anniversary next month of her passing. Every other year since then, I have done everything in my power to block it out. And that's simply because I just found it too painful. So, the healing part of this comes with this past Thanksgiving. And um, my dad, he's remarried. He's got a new wife, a wonderful and, and kind woman. And he had come to see my family on Thanksgiving Day. But I was not happy. I was at my in-law's house and my dad was only stopping by because that day, later... And this was in the morning, in the afternoon, he was celebrating Thanksgiving at the house I grew up in with his new wife and her children and her grandchildren. And I and my family had not been invited. 
And he told me about how much time, I mean, that he was spending with his new family. And he, I more or less panicked. I told him that it didn't have to be that way, that he could spend more time with our family, but he seemed to accept it as a foregone conclusion. My mom was dead and she, he had always relied on her as a connection to me and now she wasn't there to maintain it. So there was nothing we could do. And so I felt like that door was shutting completely. I had lost my mom and now I was starting to, it was starting to dawn on me that my dad was possibly gone too. In many other moments of my life, I just accepted that. And the day after that, I did not. I called him. I sobbed. I told him that I was upset by his visit. I told him that I loved him. And I never remember saying that. He told me he loved me, which I also never remember him saying. I always thought he did, though. I told him we weren't close, but I wanted to be. And I asked him to try harder. And then I hurt nearly as much as I've ever hurt in my entire life. Because I opened myself up to decades of deferred feelings and pain. And I was drowning in it. And my wife, the love of my life, Kate, who, by the way, she deserves her whole own podcast. And actually, she's, she's asked to come on the podcast and interview her, which I, I'm going to do eventually. Um, because she understands me better than anyone else in the entire world. But while I was drowning, I was also keeping her at arm's length because I had to be better and I had to be okay. And I absolutely positively had to do it by myself. Last Sunday, something shifted in me and I just changed the pattern again. I decided to let her be there for me. I invited her into what I was dealing with fully. And I just let the floodgates open. And honestly, everything since then in my life has been different. I'm pretty excited for what's next because I had no idea how much that pervasive perfectionism had been distracting my every thought and action. Okay? I've been telling people that I feel as if I've been going through decades of my life with just a blaring fire alarm going off in my head and all of a sudden it's quiet. So what can we do? with perfectionism. Here's what I know. 
I know it starts from good intentions and it, quote, works. And by works, I mean it can lead you down a path of achievement and success because it opens you up to new expectations and you start to solidify it as this is my system. But all the while, you're unwittingly missing that it is poisoning your future. At least it was poisoning mine. Eventually, it mucks up the gears so much. And it did for me that I felt as if I was working harder than ever. Pushing myself harder than ever. Achieving more than ever. And I felt terrible. (laughs) And the path out is sharing that load with at least one other person. Trusting one person to be there for you. Because you don't, in fact, have to figure it out all by yourself. The implications of what I've been discussing on this podcast are really far-reaching for me. And I look forward to sharing them with you because it feels like all the rules have changed in my life in a good way. Whether it's in the way I show up at work, what I do outside in my free time, my family life, or my own aspirations as an athlete. So... Look forward to that. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Happy holidays to everyone that has made this year an amazing one for me and the people I care about most. You can, as always, reach out to me via swimbriefpodcast at gmail.com, christycoach.com, christy underscore coach on Instagram, or CD Swim Coach on Facebook. And I will see you again soon.